As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Yo, technology, what is it all about? I would wake up all the time for years in the middle of the night and just say like, what have I done, right? I, I had this huge opportunity cost. Not only did I sort of like started a company and put money, my own money into it and, and pay myself nothing for a while. But I left behind this, you know, this other career where I could be doing really well and very comfortable. And Welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host, Danny Fortson, and we are back. How was your Christmas? Or perhaps the more appropriate question, were your Christmas plans upended in some way by COVID? Mine were. One of our kids got a false positive. Actually, no, he got two false positives, two false positives on an at-home test, which were then overturned by a negative PCR test. But by that time, we'd canceled our plans, which we'd have been making for months. Short version, these are, of course, all first world problems. Everyone's healthy. We ended up having a great break, but it was kind of a wild ride, very stressful. And I got to say, I don't know if anyone's plans weren't disrupted, either because they got sick, somebody they know caught COVID, whatever it may be. My hope is that this is the last desperate gasp of this pandemic before it turns into something less scary, less lethal, less disruptive. And we can all just kind of get back to life. So that's what I'm speaking into existence for 2022. But now, let's get to our first guest of the new year. The first one of 2022. You guys are going to really enjoy this one. I have Ryan Fight on the pod. He is the chief exec and co-founder of a company called Seed Invest. And what they do is they've created a platform that really allows anyone to invest in private startups. So think of them like Robin Hood, but for private companies, which as you'll soon hear, these type of companies for decades were only really eligible for investment from professional accredited investors. It's a very high bar, which meant only a small slice of people could actually, you know, make a bet on the next Google or Facebook or Apple, whatever it may be. Seed Invest makes it so that anyone can get into the startup game and have a go. Now, this is inherently hugely risky. As anyone knows who listens to this podcast, most startups fail. But Ryan spent the better part of a decade building this business, lured in hundreds of thousands of mostly everyday average folks as investors who have plowed in hundreds of millions into companies. Now, you may be thinking, well, surely most of them have lost their shirt. Not so says Brian. Uh, it's very much to the contrary. So we just talk about what that looks like, how they've created the system that protects investors, also makes it a good deal for entrepreneurs looking to raise cash. And perhaps most interestingly, we talk about how when he started out, the very core concept of his company, his idea of letting anyone invest in private startups, 
was illegal. And they had to go on this whole multi-year journey that included getting a law passed by Congress and then enacted by regulators to just, again, get to the very basic idea of making seed invest as a concept even legally possible. So it's a great entrepreneur story. You'll get a lot out of this one. Um, so without further ado, here is my chat with Ryan Fight of Seed Invest. So I'm really interested by what you guys do because I was thinking, I was looking at kind of kind of trolling through your website and looking at kind of what you guys do. And the first place my mind went was like Robin Hood and how Robin Hood has kind of for better and worse, demystified investing in stocks. And, you know, now the masses can invest in, you know, fractional shares, whatever it may be. They brought in millions and millions of people to this market. Is that kind of what you're trying to do here? Obviously, you know, there's going to be a smaller universe of people who want to invest in kind of high risk startups. But is that the idea here? There's a very similar theme in uh, what Robinhood is doing and what they've been able to accomplish and what we've been working on over the past 10 years and where we see the space ultimately going. That theme is ultimately, you know, democratizing access to investing. And Robinhood has obviously done that with public stocks and made it yeah. easier for ordinary people to access it and understand it and sort of participate. And we have sort of done the same thing with alternative assets, um, notably startup investment investments. And basically there was there was a time back in the not that long ago, I mean the early nineties where Sort of, if you wanted to buy a stock, you had to call up a broker or talk to them <laughs> on the telephone, place a trade. It was very expensive. And so, yeah. you know, a very small percentage of the country was investing. I think back then it was 5% of people that even bought stocks. It was 5%. It's 5%. And then you basically wow. had, you know, companies like Charles Schwab and others that, and E-Trade that sort of launch online platforms and use the internet to basically make investing in the stock market more accessible to people. And, and within six years or so, you had 20% of the country sort of investing in the stock market. And uh, before we helped get the Jobs Act passed 10 years ago, you know, you, only 2% of the country roughly was even legally able to invest a single dollar in the startups. And so- 2%. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And who, are, who were those 2% just so we understand kind of- Yeah, basically- before we helped get the Jobs Act uh, signed into law about 10 years ago, April 5th, 2012, only accredited investors, which means people that uh, either make over $200,000 of income a year or have an, over a million of net worth, excluding their primary residence in the bank, mm. were deemed sophisticated enough to invest in private companies. So everybody else was shut out. And even if you were accredited, Unless you were, you know, a venture capitalist or a very connected sort of like angel investor, you didn't have access to it anyways. So that's completely changed over the last decade. Right. And I want to get into kind of how you started this and the Jobs Act in particular, because I think that's super interesting, because that feels like really that's what's opened the floodgates here. But can we go back further? Uh, what were you doing before? Like, where did you grow up? How did you end up getting into this? What were your previous jobs, et cetera? Sure. I, I grew up in St. Louis, so grew up in the Midwest. And um, so you're a Cardinals fan? Of course. You can't be from St. Louis and not, <laughs> not be a Cardinals fan. Uh, it's a baseball town. So totally. um, basically, I uh, went to Wisconsin for my undergrad. And then after that, I, I wanted to sort of get to Wall Street. And I ultimately uh, landed a job at a place called Lehman Brothers that does not exist anymore. I've, I've and, heard of that place. Yeah. yeah. 
so I was there at a pretty interesting time. Uh, I was there basically between 2005 and 2007. Oh, wow. And the last day that I left um, was basically the top stock price that Lehman sort of achieved and everything unraveled over the next year and a half. Wow. Literally the day after I left. So I was incredibly lucky. Coincidence? <laughs> either that or, you know, either that or I was the whole reason, right? Right, right. And I'm, I'm curious, what drew you to Wall Street back then? You know, I, I kind of grew up, um, I had a brother who's four years older than me and um, and him and my dad, this is kind of during like the tech boom. Yeah. And uh, every night him and him, my dad and my brother were sort of sitting at uh, my dad's computer talking about different stocks to buy and everything like that. Mm. And, uh, you know, I was, I guess, probably 14 at the time and I was fascinated by it. And uh, so I, you know, I, I had some a couple hundred dollars or whatever, and I was I started investing in in the public markets back when I was fourteen, and I started this independent stock market class at, at high school. So I was very into that from a young age. Really interested in finance. Wait a minute. So you started a class? Was this like an investing club, basically? Where you? Yeah, it was like it was like an independent study investing club right. class that was sponsored by a teacher, where he basically just invested, you know, small, very small amounts and in stocks. And nowadays, probably it's probably happening everywhere. But back yeah. then, that was very, very rare. Did you advise your fellow students to invest in Webvan? Uh, no, I did not. <laughs> yeah. No, I actually wasn't. I actually didn't get too deep into the... I mean, I had such small amounts of money that I was investing anyways yeah, yeah. back then. But yeah, I uh, I avoided most of the, the tech bubble. My, my dad and my brother, I don't think we're so lucky. But also, I was going to say, because I, my initial job in journalism in 99, 2000 was in San Francisco, right, just right in the f last months of the run-up and then mm -hmm. the dramatic implosion. Yep. And so it was, it was kind of amazing as an education in journalism and kind of how things work and don't work is just watching all of these, all of this momentum build mm -hmm. toward this extraordinary, just like you know, and I didn't know any better. I was young and you'd be right. meeting investment bankers and they would be like, well, this is the new paradigm. It's all about, mm -hmm. you know, eyeballs, et cetera. You know, they're, they're coming up with these new financials as a way to justify these crazy valuations that in any right. way didn't make sense. Right. And then it, all the music stopped. Yeah. And it was a really amazing kind of look into like just this kind of how large groups of very, very smart, capable people can all be drawn in and then all, it all comes crashing down. And then after you're like, well, of course it did. But in the midst, you're in the midst of it, you're like, yeah, well, this is, right. if everybody's saying so, this must be the, totally. this, this, the new and, model. And yeah, I mean, so I was a little bit more distant from the tech bubble than you were, yeah. but I saw it through my dad and my brother investing in some of these, you know, stocks that were at a couple hundred PE ratio at the time and everything like that. But then I had, a, I had kind of like you, I mean, I had a very much a front row seat during the totally. Great Recession with Lehman Brothers. And, you know, I, people ask me all the time, did you know that was going to happen? And, I, you know, I was sort of like what you just said. I mean, I was an analyst, you know, an analyst who just come out of school. But it was interesting. I mean, I was in a group called Leverage Finance. And so we basically mm -hmm. financed all of the buyouts and acquisitions. And when I started at Lehman, there was kind of a rule where if you presented something to the investment committee, the cash flows of the company had to be able to pay down the debt within five years or else right. you didn't bring it to investment committee. It just didn't make sense. By my second year there, you know, within just a year, there was 
a bunch of the sort of deals that we brought to investment committee that the debt just didn't pay down at all throughout the model. And, um, oh, wow. and sometimes you, you, anyways, without getting too technical, things change dramatically. And I remember going to uh, a senior person there who will go unnamed. And I asked, why are we bringing these types of deals to investment committee anymore? You know, just a year ago, we were told that these are terrible deals. Right. And the answer was basically, well, you know, we're trying to compete with JP Morgan and Deutsche Bank and Bank of America in the league tables. And if we don't do these deals, somebody else will. And totally. we're following the league tables and, and there's so much money out there. As long as we get it off our balance sheet, it's okay. And, you know, we just, we have to keep doing, doing deals or, or we'll fall. And so it's one of those things where I think everybody kind of sensed that there was a lot, a lot of interesting risks that were being taken, but it's one of those things where it's like a staring competition where no, you just kind of <laughs> want to get the last seat before the music stops. Yep. And so just like you said, I mean, hindsight is 2020 with all this stuff. There's a lot of very obvious signs, but it's not so easy necessarily in the midst of it. Yeah. In the midst of it, it's very, very hard to be the person to stand up and say, no, this is crazy. This is getting, right. this is too frothy. I'm not going to do that. Right. When everybody right. around you is making, to put it technically, shitloads of money. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, look at what, I guess I love your thoughts on where we are right now in this crazy market that we've had since COVID started. I mean, it's- Well, let's, I want to put a pin in that because this is, <laughs> I feel like it's it's exactly apropos of what's happening right now. But um, sure. so let's put a pin in that. But so you okay. left in 2007. I left in 2007. I basically, I went to a private equity fund in New York called Wellspring, um, the multi-billion dollar fund. We basically yeah. bought and sold, sold companies. And, you know, I, it was a great experience for me. Um, I was kind of at a point where I was promoted to a post MBA level and I was on the partner track and, you know, most likely would have stayed on and been a partner and it was not a bad life at all. Got paid well, flew private, you know, not, couldn't complain much, but I, I'd always wanted to uh, do something entrepreneurial. Uh, even since, since from a very young age, I'd always sort of come up with these crazy ideas and stuff like that. Were you the kid with the lemonade stand or something similar? I I wouldn't call myself the kid with the lemonade stand. There there were other people that were probably more entrepreneurial at a young kid and like scrapping for yeah. pennies than I was. But I was constantly coming up with these ideas and sort of working on them. And you know, when I was basically uh, I don't know in middle school or maybe even younger, right? Um, even when I was a lean, I was working at stuff on the side. So I'd always I had always had this desire to try to you know start my own thing. And I got to the point where I was like I could stand this private equity track and not have a bad life. But I think for me, I thought that I would get to this point where, you know, I'd be dying. I'd be an old man, sort of like dying in my bed and wonder what if, you know, why didn't I take a shot? And I didn't want to live with that regret of not taking my shot. And so I was kind of the first person to leave the firm I was at in the 15 years since inception without, you know, sort of like getting laid off. So I was like, wow, it was pretty rare to actually leave that type of a job. How hard was that? The actual leaving? It was hard. It was hard. I mean, I had all the partners sort of trying to dissuade me away from it saying, why would, you know, why would you leave? This is obviously a really lucrative career and you're in a great place. You have a great path ahead of you. Why do it type of thing? And these are all guys that went to business school, but the world had kind of changed. You didn't need to go to business school anymore. So yeah, people try and talk me out of it. And I think that honestly, I mean, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but one of the hardest things for me about my journey with Seed Invest is I would wake up all the time for years in the middle of the night and just say like, what have I done? Right. I, I had this huge opportunity cost. Not only did I 
sort of like started a company and put money, my own money into it and, and pay myself nothing for a while. But I left behind this, you know, this other career where I could be doing really well and very comfortable and took all this sort of, you know, anxiety and risk that you take on as a, as a founder for a long time and a huge roller coaster. And so that was probably the hardest part of the journey for me is just that, that opportunity cost of leaving behind what I left behind. Well, it's interesting. The reason I ask is because my wife, she's a lawyer and she worked at a big firm in DC and, and was the same thing on partner track, you know, potentially a very good, cushy, though very, very hardworking kind of path. And eventually she decided to leave. And it was the same thing of just people kind of, you're in this milieu and you kind of look around and everybody's like, you're crazy. What are you doing? You're going to ruin your career, all of this stuff. And it makes it, even though in her case, she didn't really like the job. Mm -hmm. Um, At the end of the day, it was still very, very hard to actually be like, you know what, I'm quitting, I'm leaving. And this, you know, say goodbye to the paycheck and the stability. I'm going to go figure out another path. Yeah, I like to say that the people who make the best entrepreneurs are high school dropouts and criminals because they have nothing, <laughs> they have nothing, nothing to lose. And it's, you know, if you don't start a company, like you're on the street type of thing. So it's a lot harder, I think for, you know, somebody in your wife's situation who is leaving behind and the, and the more senior you get, the harder the, bigger yep. the opportunity costs. So I think that is really challenging for people. Totally. Um, so you left Wellspring. When was that? In 2000 and 2010. And then what? Well, I didn't have an idea at the time for a company to start. So I went back to business school. And my goal during business school was to find a company to start. That was literally my entire goal at business school. So yeah, I I basically, I went to, I went to Warden. I started there in 2010. It's funny at Warden, we had a class of 800 students, relatively large. And I, I would imagine about 600 of the 800 students during the first month said, I'm not, I, I'm going to start a company at business school. I'm on, that's what yeah. I want to do. So, you know, whatever, uh, a significant percentage. Yeah. And, uh, you know, basically within a few months, I'd say at least probably 550 of those 600 kids basically uh, took some banking or consulting or you know, comfortable job. Yeah. There's dangling large bags of cash in front of them. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So there are very few people that ended up, um, you know, sticking with the entrepreneurial route in school, which was interesting. Right. So how did you alight on this idea for, for seed invest? And can you, can you basically, yeah. I know we kind of covered it initially, but just describe briefly what it, what it is and then how you ended up coming upon it. So seed invest is a leading equity crowdfunding platform. We, uh, basically provide investors with investment access to highly vetted startup investment opportunities and enable founders to raise capital online for the first time, you know, with the goal of spending less time fundraising and more time building their business. And uh, on the investor side, we have about 650,000 individual investors who are looking to find uh, investment opportunities in startups through us. And on the other side, we've had 50,000 plus startups that have applied to raise money on seed invest and and historically we have basically launched one percent of the startups that have applied to raise capital so you know we're pretty selective for people right so how did that end up being the thing yeah uh so basically in 2011 during my second year of business school i read an article about these two guys one named woody niece another named jason best who basically had seen what was happening with kickstarter at the time and, you know, Kickstarter was basically, for anyone who's not familiar, 
you know, it's a platform for raising small amounts from lots of people, but it's not securities. So you can get, yeah. you know, in, in exchange, you get a t-shirt or your name, name in the credits of a movie or, you know, product, you know, early, but no, no equity in the company or anything like that. And so they, they sort of saw what was emerging with that and said, well, why can't we do the same thing and get equity in companies? And, and so yeah. they had sort of um, come up with this framework that they sort of brought to Capitol Hill. And um, I read this ar- early article about what they were doing and it just completely clicked with me. And I, I got, mm. I, I was actually on a flight to Miami where I now live with some friends. And I remember getting off the flight when I read this article and I, the whole car ride sort of to our hotel, I was just telling them about this movement and telling them that this is you know going to be a huge thing. And I think yeah. 90% of them told me I was crazy. It would never happen. And so I was just convinced that just like other, other, all other industries, you know, media, et cetera, that fundraising investing would move online and that this would open up to more people. I was just immediately fascinated by it. So I kind of the next week reached out to Woody Neese, um, him and Jason are ended up becoming investors in seed invest and friends, but I reached out to them cold and said, you know, I'm an MBA student at Wharton and I want to help you in this movement. I want to get behind it. And luckily, you know, we hit it off and right. ended up helping them basically get this bill called the Entrepreneur Access Capital Act, uh, passed through the House by a vote of 407 to 17, November 2011. So all of a sudden there was sort of some real movement behind it. And then it was, there was a big fight to actually get it brought to the Senate floor by Harry Reid and to get it you know, through the Senate. Eventually we rolled this piece of legislation into a bigger piece of legislation called the Jobs Act and were yeah. able to get it, get it signed into law April 5th, 2012 by Obama. So that was, you know, I basically bought the domain name for Seed Invest in something like November 2011. So, you know, well before the job was getting signed and it started working on it on the side when I was at business school. And then I graduated May 2012. So, you know, right around when the bill was signed, started working on it full time. And then I convinced um, a friend who I went to business school with named James Hahn, convinced him to sort of join me. I'd been sort of like lobbying him for six months and he finally joined me when we started in May. So that's no small thing, right? So you used to read about this idea, but effectively the core of that, that idea is illegal <laughs> when you start or it's not allowed. So when you say you helped get it on the Congress floor and get it passed, like, what does that look like? What do you mean by it? Like, what did you guys do? Well, the biggest thing, frankly, was after we got it through Congress, like I mentioned, you know, things get passed in in the House and then they die on the Senate floor. Yeah. That's just kind of how these things work. But how did you even get it passed in the House? You're three guys with an idea and you're like, yeah, we should do this. But like going from that to actually getting it in the form of a bill and then finding a sponsor who's like, yeah, this is a good idea. I'm going to push this through. That feels like there's a lot of heavy lifting there. Yeah. Look, I mean, we also did this during the perfect window of time. So if you think back to like late 2011, this is when we were climbing out of the Great Recession Yeah. and you know, people had lost their jobs. So this idea of creating jobs, and there's a lot of data out there that we had that suggested that startups and small businesses created the vast majority of jobs out there and contributed two thirds of GDP growth. And so we had, we were armed with pretty strong data. We had examples of what was happening with Kickstarter and we just had this perfect window of sort of this, this idea of using this as a mechanism for creating jobs and getting the economy restarted and things like that. And we, we were lucky to find basically an advocate in Congressman Patrick McHenry. And how did you connect with him? Honestly, Woody, Woody and Jason basically just reached out to, cold reached out to a bunch of different people, you know, in government. 
And it was interesting because right. this whole movement was done without lobbyists. I mean, it was just a bunch of entrepreneurs that were doing it independently without spending any money. And it's pretty rare and hard to do that type of a thing. Well, yeah, well, that's why I just, it's, you know, lots of people have lots of ideas, but getting some, getting a lot to change to help enact that idea just feels like, yeah, <laughs> as you say, very rare. In, in hindsight, I mean, it is, it is pretty crazy that we were able to make this happen. And this is probably, you know, arguably one of the biggest changes securities laws, not the biggest in like 80 years. So it is a, an amazing sort of feat. And when you look back at it all now, I guess. So you got Patrick McHenry to say, well, you get in a room with him and he gets things. This is a good idea. He brings it into the house, right? The house is supportive. It's bipartisan. And then in the Senate, Harry Reid doesn't want to bring it to the floor. And um, we ultimately, so after the, when we sort of hit this brick wall, if you will, in December and January, we ended up, um, I, I worked with Woody and Jason to launch this website called legalizedcrowdfunding.org. And we basically use this as a mechanism to just like grassroots, get as many entrepreneurs. And I was getting a ton of college students, MBA students to log on and, and sort of sign this petition electronically that would distribute letters to their local senators so that we're basically <laughs> making noise and getting it and you know, spamming right. as many senators as possible. Carpet bombing with spam letters. Yeah, which can work. So we, we did that. And then there was a person with it. We knew that we had supported the White House, but we had to get it through the Senate. And there was a person that we, that we spoke with at the White House who basically, frankly, let us know that our best chance of getting this passed is to get it rolled into the larger piece of legislation, mm. the Jobs Act, which would be very challenging for them not to bring to the floor and the block. It right. had, had so many aspects which are important for job growth and entrepreneurship. And that's that was the play. And that's what ended up working. So when you guys actually pulled this off, were you like, oh, my God, there had to have been a celebration or something where you're like, I can't believe we've actually done this. Yeah, I mean, it's been one of those things. I think there's just been a lot of those, oh, my God, moments over the past decade. You know, there was there was sort of like the the Rose Garden ceremony when it was signed. And there were a bunch of things where people from this industry that didn't exist yet of uh, where we'd get together and, and meet and there'd be conferences and stuff like that. But uh, I think that the real interesting part of the battle actually happened after the bill got signed, you know, and this was a very eye-opening experience for me too. You know, I was a wide-eyed entrepreneur and um, the way the legislation was written was, was that basically, so I should take a step back. When a law like this is passed that relates to securities, the bill signed the law, and then you can't act on the vast majority of it until the SEC actually takes that bill and writes the full final rules. Oh, so see. there's these guidelines of the Jobs Act, but until the SEC writes the rules, you can't use it. And basically, by law, this this Jobs Act bill said, SEC, you have till December 31st, 2012. So you have you know nine months or whatever it is, eight, nine months, eight months, I guess, to finalize this. And, you know, in 2013, everyone would take advantage of it. And so, you know, being a first-time entrepreneur who had not really dealt with security, you know, I'd worked on Wall Street and private equity, but I hadn't dealt with like, you know, these SEC rule changes before anything like that. I assumed this will be done when it's supposed to, just December 31st, 2012. And by early yeah. 2013, will be operational. And I was completely wrong about that. I had some people that were saying, oh, the government's going to take longer. And I said, no, this is the way the law is written. This is it. And uh, it basically took three and a half years longer than it was supposed to. Three and a half years? Three and a half years. So literally the passage of this was just step one. I mean, there was most of the battle happened after the passage of the, oh of my the rules, gosh. I would say. 
So I was speaking on a panel at the SEC in the summer of 2012. And so I was meeting with people from the SEC and FINRA. And I, I remember calling James and just saying, this is not good. Like, this is not happening December 31st. This is going to take a long, long time. And yeah. we had a conversation of like, should we just, should we, you know, lace up our shoes and call it a day or should we continue on? Because this, mm. this is not what we expected. And we made the, you know, our decision was let's do what we can now legally, which is um, when the bill was signed, you could operate an online platform like Seedinvest to do fundraises for startups, but you could only work with accredited investors and you could only do it privately. So we, we said, mm. you know, let's focus on what we can do. Let's power ahead and do what we can to get these rules, you know, finalized when, when they can. But the whole idea of what we've been doing was always to democratize things and to open it up to everybody, not just to work with the credit investors. So, you know, we had to pivot pretty hard and wait three and a half years to actually take advantage of the full thing. And we were during those three and a half years. And even after that, I mean, we have, we spent countless hours with um, people at the SEC, people at FINRA, mm. people on Capitol Hill to educate them on what sort of like an online investment platform was, how it would work, how, how all this sort of stuff would work. And we were kind of like our platform at many times was kind of the the example that, you know, we demo for that and for the regulators and stuff like that. But it was, it took as long as it did because the SEC is an independent agency from the mm -hmm. government. And so, you know, they can effectively, they can sit on bills if they want to, they can decide just to like, throw in a bunch of language that makes it that neuters the bill and makes it ineffective yeah. if they want. So it was a, a long sort of like experience and I could get into more of the details of sort of what happened and everything like that if, if you want. But yeah, that, that was probably the most interesting part of the journey, I would say. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, Calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Was it simply just big bureaucratic inertia? Or was it, okay, they, the bill is passed, but was there this concern that, you know, your average Joe maybe shouldn't be investing in startups? Because the whole, everybody knows that in, who covers this industry that like, you know, venture capital, for example, it's a, it's a hits business. You know, you, you kind of, all you need is one out of 10 to really fly. I agree. Right. And most of those others will fail to one degree or another. So was there just a concern that, you know, 
average folks are going to be losing their shirts and this isn't a good idea. 100%. 100%. So you had, you had a couple of things at play. First and foremost, like the SEC, their main role is to protect investors. Yeah. Their, their main role, even though there is some of their mandate that has to do with innovation and entrepreneurship, I mean, their, their main role is not to create jobs. It's, it is to protect investors. So anything that, you know, basically is new and innovative and, and expands sort of who can actually access investments that are, you know, startup investing, like you said, I mean, it's riskier than investing in stocks and bonds. It's, yeah, it just makes their job of protecting investors um, just makes it harder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it makes it harder. And also, you know, if you're used to a certain rule book, this is a very different thing than anything they've dealt with before. Even just the idea of being able to use the internet or, you know, Twitter and the news to talk about the fact that you're fundraising, you couldn't do that before the job deck. So just even right. them grasping how to manage that was a big deal. You know, they have this, you, you're, typically you have to have something in print and it has to have this huge disclaimer, like that's different. So yeah, a lot of people did not like it for that reason. Also, there were a lot of people, lobbyists that had deep pockets that also were, were against it and state regulators mm. that were against it. And, uh, Basically, you had a chairwoman at the time that it was signed who was definitely not supportive of the bill and just sort of sat on it. And then when she left, basically, there was another chairwoman that came in. She was also not supportive. So basically, both of these two first chairwomen just didn't just kind of sat on it and slow played it and didn't do much. And then the, basically, there's a third chairwoman, Mary Jo White, who basically came in, you know, took the helm at the SEC. We actually met with her and demoed Seed Investor first, her first week in office. And she was the one who actually said, like, let's get this done already. So you had a lot of politics at play. Who are the interests that did not want this to happen? I mean, there's just a lot. I, I don't want to, I'm going to be careful not to name specific people, yeah. but there are a lot of like investor advocate type of groups that don't like expansion of anything related to, to capital rate formation and just the role that they take. So were these like, were these actually genuine public interest, let's protect the investors, or was it some other industry that might see some downside here dressing themselves up as the latter? Gotcha. And then last question about like this whole legislative journey, then we'll get to the company. Was there ever a, like a, a meeting or a moment in this like three and a half years where you're like, you know what, this is not going to happen. I can't do this anymore. This is a waste of my time. All the time. I mean, I, I think I, I kind of mentioned it earlier, alluded to it at least. There were many, many moments when I was building Seed Invest and, you know, dealing with the hoopla in DC where I'd come away saying, you know, is this really going anywhere? This is taking forever. You know, maybe it's just too hard. Maybe it's, maybe the timing is not right. Maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't have left private equity. Like what, yeah, you know, yeah. all, the, all the time. I mean, and the funny thing about building a startup is that you know, I think people read about Ubers of the world and, and, and they sort of just assume that everything's like a, everything goes sharply up into the right, uh, up into the right, yeah, up yeah. into the right. And you snap your fingers and someone throws you a hundred million dollars. And it's, you know, yeah. that's what you read about in TechCrunch and stuff like that. That's not reality, you know, for 99.99999% of entrepreneurs. So, you know, I, I found that even the bigger it gets, I mean, even when Seed Invest was, you know, had raised money successful, we had really grown our network, we became profitable. Even during those times, it's like the the, the highs and the lows just get bigger. It's not mm -hmm. like it, it goes away, even as you, you build out a team yeah. and you start to be successful, you have down quarters and everything like that. So it's it's part of the challenge. It really is a, a roller coaster building a company. Why did you stick with it? I mean, because especially with your previous experience, you could have gone off to, you know, 
I'm sure you could have walked back into a very well-paying job in any number of places. And again, the hill you were climbing was effectively, is the basis of my startup even going to be legalized, which is yeah. not small. Yeah. Um, I had asked myself that question many times in the past. You know, I, <laughs> I, uh, I had invested so much into the effort that I had to see it through. I, the failure was just not an option for me. It wasn't an option because I had taken this crazy leap of faith and invested years of my life into it. It wasn't an option because I put some of my own money into it. It wasn't an option yeah. because I had raised money from friends and family who right. I cared about and wanted to succeed for them. And uh, you know, I had employees who were relying on themselves. And, and also, I, I, uh, I've always been a firm believer that this is inevitable, this movement of sort of moving access online and opening it up to more people and, and uh, making fundraising more efficient. So uh, those are the things that kept me going, but not easy throughout the process, for sure. No. And so the, it finally gets actualized after that three and a half years. I guess that would take to the end of 2015 or 2016. 2016, yeah. 2016. So at that point, do, do you go out and raise venture capital and be like, all right, now we're cooking, now we can really go? Like, where do you go from there? How does it grow? So we were building our business prior to that. It wasn't, we weren't just sitting on our hands. So we had in uh, early 2013, I think February, we launched our first deal, but it was only open to accredited investors and investors had to pre-register on our site before they could see deals. September 2013, the second part of the jobs that kicked in, which allowed these companies to advertise that they were raising mm. money online for the first time kept building. We raised money along yeah. the way from VCs and, and from our own community, actually. And then, uh, and then, you know, basically we were able to open things up to non-accredited investors, to everybody. And, and we saw a lot of growth through that. Since we started in 2013, I mean, we had grown revenue every single year and we got to profitability uh, probably 2017 or 2018. Right. Profitability and had, you know, built a decent business. And then basically in sort of May of 2018, I got connected with Jeremy Allaire, who's the CEO of Circle. Circle is a, a large company in the crypto space. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we hit it off. He was, um, they were interested in acquiring a company like us, one that was regulated. We, you know, set up our own broker dealer and in uh, a platform that had basically built out the technology to you know, make fundraising and investing efficient. And so it was a pretty good fit. And, um, this was a company that at the time had raised uh, hundreds of millions of dollars from VCs and, uh, and had a lot of resources. And, and uh, so we decided to basically sell Seed Invest to Circle. We closed it in uh, March 1st, 2019. But that's kind of, I guess, the journey of building Seed Invest independently. And you've st obviously you've stuck around. Yeah, I have. You know, we've frankly, over the last two years, built Seed Invest pretty independently from Circle. Mm. And Circle has gone through its own sort of iterations. They uh, they ended up having a pretty substantial pivot in uh, sort of late 2019, and um, they had this this sort of thing called USDC or US Dollar Coin that they brought in Coinbase in as a, a 50/50 JV, or I shouldn't say 50/50, but as a partner. And uh, it was you know basically right before COVID, it was like a 500 million dollar market cap. And the circle sort of pivoted to really focusing and doubling down on USDC and services for, for USDC, basically a dollar back digital dollar. And um, it's now 43 billion. So, you know, since pre COVID went from 500 million to 43 billion now. So it's really taken off. 500 million to 43 billion. Yeah, pretty incredible. 
Jesus. and uh, and we're in the process of circle of of, uh, of going public now as well, which we've announced. And so earlier this year, we made the decision to more formally integrate Seed Invest into Circle. We're using sort of the resources we have at Circle to double down on Seed Invest, grow the team. Um, right. That's in sales and marketing, et cetera. And then I, I joined basically Circle's leadership team, I guess this maybe six months ago or so as well. So right. I'm kind of running Seed Invest, but also helping to build out Circle and also helping to launch some, some investment products on the Circle side. So can you talk about like, what's the typical investment size for somebody in, in a Seed Invest company? Like, how does that work? Because also... I, and also the the vetting process, because that feels like quite crucial. You mentioned that you kind of have tens of thousands who have applied, but you take less or what about 1%. That feels like a critical piece. And I'd love to just understand who is actually investing because Robinhood has had this kind of, you know, this moment and it's become this brand that a lot, especially younger people know and are rushing toward. What does that universe look like for you and who's investing? How much are they investing? How's it work? You know, on the best investor side, it depends on the person. The majority of our investors, you know, call it 600,000 of our investors are non-accredited. They they are investing smaller amounts. The, the minimums for a deal are typically, let's say, $500 per mm-hmm. investment. And so the if you look at most of our investors, the median investor investment is what the minimum will be. So, you know, $500 or it could be $1,000. And then the mean investment, the average is probably more like $2,500 or $3,000, I would say. Yeah. Um, and then you have accredited investors and family offices in our platform that you know and, and might invest anywhere between $25,000 to, we've had people invest $2 million into a, into a company. Right. So there's a broad range for sure. And you know it's all about diversifying and startups. Like you said before, your typical investment is is going to fail if you just invest yep. in one company. We always tell people not to do that. If you invest in a basket of at least 10 companies, like you said, I mean, you're hoping that one of those is the one that carries a portfolio or maybe you have a couple that do okay. And that works. That math works as long as you do it do it wisely. In terms of our, our vetting, which is mission critical for sure and, and what yeah. really has differentiated us, basically what we've built, we have all these data points from you know 50,000 plus companies that have applied over time. And so when you apply now on Seedinvest, we built this thing called Athena, which is a automated vetting product. And we have something called Athena 1 and 2, but you're asked certain objective questions. And we take that data and we will actually reject or advance um, 60 plus percent of companies based on those that information that you give us. Mm. And no humans are interacting. It's basically you know automated. Right. And then you, you get past that part of Athena and you're giving us more financial information Etc. And we basically have a model that scores your company based on that historical data that we have. And at that point, we are we do have humans that are ultimately making the decision, but they're leveraging that that model. Yeah. And ultimately, we'd like to make it all automated, but that's kind of the you know the the vetting process. But the, so presumably a lot. I mean, it's in the name Seed Invest. Seed investing is all about you know backing people early oftentimes at least in part of the parlance out here with two people with an idea on the back of a napkin so to speak or or a deck or whatever in other words these aren't businesses half the time they're kind of a concept no it's actually with us it's not necessarily the case i mean we're and and the name seed invest is a misnomer of sorts too at this point um right i'll give you an example we have a company called nowrex that we did do their seed round we put in their first five hundred thousand dollars a few years ago 
last year we we had basically ten thousand people on seed invest that invested twenty million dollars into them just through us hmm. uh, and that was their series b i believe and they're about to do a larger round they're they're in the middle of a, a larger round on seed invest as we speak and they'll raise more than twenty million dollars so we do do much later stuff than just seed rounds, but uh, we are not typically investing in ideas. We're looking to invest in businesses. So we're looking for companies where there is a, at least, you know, there's more than one person. There's a real founding team that is de- full-time dedicated to it. We're looking for something that there's at least an MVP or a prototype. Um, so there's, you know, we take away some of that product risk and we're looking for some proof of traction. So that could be, you know, if you're a, B2B company, it could be customer contracts. If you're a consumer-facing company, it could be users and user growth, or it could be obviously revenue if you're at that point. But we're not, and we're, we're typically not taking the idea on a napkin risk. Right. And then I'm just curious about the universe of, of you know, what's in it for the companies? And is this, does this end up being a good bet for investors? And this may be an uneducated view, but just thinking about like, you know, things like Y Combinator, you know, all the companies that get funded out here, let's call those like the cream of the crop. So is what is left to go to seed invest to people who couldn't get funding elsewhere? In other words, are those lower quality companies? Absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, our, our returns, which I think we'll probably publish this quarter are, are very good. And mm. then I would say probably, you know, top quartile venture type of returns across the platform. And I mean, people graduate from YC and then they'll apply on seed invest to raise money after that. Right. Maybe, maybe they get accepted, maybe they don't, type of thing. But uh, you know, if you're if you're a startup founder, there are a couple reasons why you would look to raise money online. The first is that fundraising is a huge pain in the ass, and you know, as totally. a CEO, it like ends up taking the vast majority of your mind space. And so, having a platform where you already have six hundred fifty thousand investors and a lot of really like very connected former CEOs and people is pretty valuable to be able to hit all of that at once, you know, if you get approved on our platform. So it can make your process a lot more efficient. You know, I think as a a founder as well, two of the biggest challenges for you early on is one is fundraising. And the second one is just getting the word out for your product or service. And through doing a proper equity crowdfunding campaign, you can kill two birds with one stone. So you can basically raise the capital, you know, through us, you can raise, we'll do the first 500,000 to a couple million. We'll do, like I said, you know, we've done a bunch of 10 to $20 million types mm-hmm. of rounds on our platform, but you'll also, you can raise from, you know, hundreds or thousands of, of people that will own a small piece of your company and be your biggest cheerleader, spread the word about your company. You can invite your customers to own a small piece. Right. You know, we have campaigns where millions of people have seen that campaign. So for an early stage mm-hmm. company to all of a sudden, like, get millions of people to learn about what you're doing is pretty valuable. You can't do that from just raising money from one VC. Right. And so is there a typical fundraise amount for the companies that have raised through Seed Invest? It's uh, on the early stage side. It's yeah. you're raising, like I said before, like 500,000 to a couple million dollars. So if you're, yeah. you know, seed to early series A, and then for the companies that sort of grow beyond that. And a lot of them are our portfolio companies that sort of come back to do larger raises. We do sort of these five to, you know, 20 or $30 million raises after that on the platform. So it's kind of bifurcated between these seed to early series A and then sort of series A to series B, I would say. And we've had comp- we've companies now that are raising money and we'll do it all the way through going public. A couple examples, we had a company called Heliogen, which was uh, is run by Bill Gross, who founded Idea Lab, you know, hmm. iconic sort of uh, 
iconic person in the startup world. He basically raised um, close to $2 million on Seed Invest four years ago at a $20 million valuation from about 1,000 people. And about six days ago, actually on Friday, I should say, on Friday, he basically listed on the New York Stock Exchange at a $2 billion valuation. Wow. So it's a, and this is like, it's probably the first example where non-accredited retail investors in the U.S. actually got into a publicly traded unicorn. Yeah, um, right. So, I mean, and, and people did very well, obviously. So there's an example. And then now Rex, who I mentioned before, I mean, they raised their first 500,000 on our platform about four years ago. They came back and raised $7 million to us. And they came back last year and raised 20. And they're in the middle of a round where they'll, they'll probably do north of 30. And then, you know, they're ultimately looking to go public and they'll be able to do it all without going down the VC route. Right. And how do you make money? We take basically a percentage of whatever's raised in cash. Hmm. And then we take basically a, a percentage in equity in the company. So I see. So it's a little bit like the YC model. Like you get a little chunk of every company. Exactly. Right? Yeah. A bunch of lottery tickets and, and then some cash to try to keep the lights on. Right. Right. Well, looks like the lights are on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. appreciate it. <laughs> Cool. Look, I think those are all my questions. I think it's a, it's a fascinating idea. And especially kind of where we started, like we can kind of end here with just the state of the markets now. I don't understand. I, I, <laughs> I don't understand anything anymore. Yeah, I just either. don't get it. I mean, are you kind of bracing for, you know, what goes up must come down? Things must come down at some point, you feel like, and what that looks like and how violent that may be is, I mean, TBD, but it feels like that's coming. Let me put startups aside for a second. Yeah. In, in terms of the where we are in the broader landscape, when you look at publicly listed companies, evaluations that they're trading at, you look at some of the stuff going on in the crypto world, you see what's happening in the private markets, you see what's happening in real estate. Yes, I think that, I think there's a lot of bubble-like activity that is happening right now. And I don't think it's sustainable forever. I don't know exactly what the catalyst will be and when it will, when it will shift. But, you know, I think uh, maybe it was Warren Buffett that said history doesn't, um, could have been someone else, but said, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I think your experience, yeah. you know, in the, te in the tech bubble, my experience in the great recession and, and sort of uh, what's going on right now, it feels like a lot of similarities and um, it's hard not to, at some point, this is not going to last forever, for sure. Right. And presumably that would, if if the proverbial hits the fan, a lot of the people on your platform, they're not going to have extra cash to, you know, to buy a bunch of lottery tickets, so to speak. I think there are a couple, there are a couple things that I've seen over the last 10 years in terms of like, we, we haven't seen a massive implosion, I guess, but we've seen, yeah. some, we've seen some cycles at this point. One thing, and I'm seeing this broadly in, in, in the venture world, is that what you're seeing is you're seeing a lot of like, pretty sophisticated VC funds and other investors that are doing zero due diligence right now. And they're, they're yeah. investing at stupid valuations. We're not doing that, at least on our end. We're still being pretty methodical about it. Mm. And there are deals that we miss out on for sure, because we're going through our process and doing due diligence and making sure we get the valuations make sense. But most people are not right now. So I think we're still sticking our guns on our end. The second thing I would say is that what we've seen through some other, like right when COVID hit, you know, VCs just stopped investing. They froze up. And there's still a lot of founders that are doing interesting things. I mean, we, we saw a huge uptick in companies coming to our platform because of that. And not just having like one pension or endowment that's giving us capital, but having, you know, 
a large amount of retail investors actually uh, is helpful. And it's one of those downside markets where, you know, pensions and endowments are overexposed yeah. to the public markets all of a sudden, and therefore they can't put money into private equity or venture capital. That, that actually doesn't affect us necessarily. So we've actually seen some benefits in down markets in the past. I know I said that was the last question, but I have one more. Are there protections for investors? Because I, you read stories about here, out here all the time, and I've written some of them around, you know, kind of early investors somehow get elbowed out by later investors who put in these, you know, certain terms that basically dilute down to nothing the, you know, earlier investors. Is Are there any protections here or is that just part of the business? No, there, there are actually a lot more protections, at least on our platform than in the offline world. A couple of things. So first of all, with the vast majority of our deals, people can only, it's limited how much you can invest per investment. So, hmm. you know, you can only invest up to 10% of your, of your income or net worth uh, in any individual deal. So we actually will cap it. We look into like how much of your overall in, investable assets are you putting into alternatives? And we limit that as well to make sure people aren't putting it all into startups, which they shouldn't. And then, yeah, we have, you know, we basically have a legal team that reviews every every the legal docs of any investment before it comes on the platform we have our own form legal docs and people on our platform are investing in preferred stock with sophisticated protections or convertible notes that convert and preferred we've never done common which other people will do so there are a ton of projections against against stuff like that you know i, I always say that there could be very good companies that are bad investments so it could be a great company but you're investing at a very high valuation with not very good protections it doesn't mean it's a good investment so right well, cool. Well, I wish you luck with the uh, the IPO. It sounds like your roller coaster doesn't stop because that sounds like it's a whole experience unto itself. But um, yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. It's it's uh, we're on the the fun part of the roller coaster right now. So <laughs> knock on wood. Hopefully, hopefully it continues. Right, right, right. And that was all the time we have. I want to thank Ryan for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening, for tuning in, for the ratings, for the reviews. Always appreciate it. Here's to 2022 being better. I'm tired of COVID. Everyone's tired of COVID. I'd love to do more of these back in person. We had a little brief window there where we're starting to see people and, you know, sit down across the table from him, which is just so much more fun than doing everything by Zoom, but we shall see. Anyhow, thank you for coming along the ride. I will endeavor to bring a whole bunch of interesting, fascinating, colorful characters to you in 2022 so that is it for me this week you can find me on twitter at danny fortson you can email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk that is it have a fabulous weekend and be well bye-bye VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.